Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. So good to see everybody today. Isn't it beautiful? It's a beautiful day. You wake up and you're like, is it really January? It can't be, right? You know, I, I'm like, don't get your hopes up. It is definitely going to have a huge snowstorm in like a week. So don't get too happy about it. We can't let the weather know we like it, right? That's how I feel like Eugene is. If, if people get too excited about it being nice out, you know, if too many people go outside, have a picnic, go hiking, go to the coast, anything like that, then Eugene's like, that's it. And it like pours for days after, you know, or they have an ice storm or something like that. But, you know, I'm so glad to see everyone this morning. Today we are concluding this awesome series we've been in called Minimal. And um, I've really enjoyed this series. You know, Pastor Jake started off by talking about having space for ourselves. Imagine that, right? But really clearing enough room in our lives in order to just have space, in order to be able to breathe. How many of you guys are working really hard at that? I'm teasing. Jake made that joke that you're going to go 110% at making sure you have margins. But um, And then the next week, uh, Pastor Mike, he talked about having space for God, and he did an awesome message on prayer and the importance of prayer and encouraged all of us to be people who pray even more. And then last week, we heard about having space for relationship and how that will just absolutely transform our lives and how it's not only space for relationship for us, but we have people that need us, Right? Um, you know, I forgot. I forgot to welcome you, Regal Campus Second Service. We're so glad you're here. I ran away over to the U of O, but you get to um, watch on the big screen today. So sit back, relax, and it's going to be a wonderful time. Um, but today what we're going to talk about is space to make a difference. Space to make a difference. Now, when you think about someone in the world who's made a difference, what do you think about? right? He's like, okay, who's someone in the, in the whole history of time who's made a difference? First thing I think about is Jesus, correct? Okay, no one has ever made a difference more, better, greater than Jesus made, correct? Or, or how about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul, he made a huge difference, okay? Um, even today, we read his writings, and he wrote um, more books of the Bible than anybody else. And so the Apostle Paul, or maybe you think of like a missionary, right? Maybe you think of Hudson Taylor, or maybe you think of someone like um, a writer, like Andrew Murray. If it's Jake, he's thinking of C.S. Lewis, right? Um, or maybe you think of George Mueller or, or these people. You know, I, I'm, when I think of someone who makes a difference, I think of someone in a Christian context. Maybe you are like Steve Jobs. He has made a difference in our world, right? Or, or Zuckerberg, right? He has revolutionized my life, right? You guys are like, who is that? He invented Facebook, <laughs> changed my life. No, but, but someone who, who made a difference. Or how about Billy Graham? Billy Graham, this man, if you are alive right now, he, he's basically changed the world. It's estimated that he has preached the gospel to 2.2 billion people. Isn't that incredible? 2.2 billion, not million, right? A million is impressive. A billion, we can't really fathom. Right? That is someone who's made a difference. And when I think about making a difference, I think about these people who've made such a big difference that then I think, how could I possibly really make a difference? Am I right? How many of you guys ever feel that way? Man, someone says, have space in your life to make a difference. What could I do? How can I possibly make a difference? You know, the first step to um, making a difference is we have to make enough space to make a difference. You know, here in the United States today, there are literally more storage lockers than there are Starbucks. 
Isn't that crazy? When I was 15, my sister, she lived in New York City, so that's the first time that I got to go to New York City. And um, I could not believe how many Starbucks there were, especially in Times Square. It's literally across the street from each other. Granted, it's a large street, but still, you were like, person couldn't walk across the street? Like, it was valuable enough to have them across the street from each other? There are so many Starbucks. They're everywhere, even in all the grocery stores now. You're like, yes, I did want a cup of coffee while I fight my kids to get groceries, right? That's absolutely what I wanted. There's so many Starbucks, and yet there's more storage lockers today in the United States than Starbucks. We have a lot of stuff, right? I remember Jake and I, we had been married... um, I don't know how many years, but this was probably about five years ago. We were having a yard sale. We never really had a yard sale, and we never have since. (laughs) But we had a yard sale, and all of our stuff was, you know, on our um, driveway. We didn't really have a yard. Our yard at this house, it was a big, huge pond. It was pretty. It was like a water feature, but you couldn't put stuff in it. So it was in the driveway. And, um, you know, we made so much money. We could not even believe how much money we made at this garage sale. But it was weird seeing all your stuff out there, right? It's weird seeing all your stuff. The reason that we made so much money is because we weren't selling our junk. Most of the time, that's what you sell at a garage sale. But actually, we were selling all of our stuff. You see, we had, we had just felt like God had told us to move to Eugene. So we decided to do this crazy adventure. I was about six months pregnant with little Jack, who's over there. And, and um, we had little Evie, and we decided, okay, we're going to obey God, and we're going to move to Eugene. And we were trying to find housing. How many of you guys have ever tried to find housing in Eugene? Oh, it's awesome, huh? No, it's awful. And so we finally found an apartment. And we always joke that it was a tiny little apartment, but the truth is it was the largest apartment I think they make in Eugene. And still, we had to sell over half our stuff because that's how much stuff we had. And so this was nice stuff. This was our stuff, but we had to get rid of it because it wasn't going to fit. And so because it was good stuff, we made so much money. We were like, wow, we should sell all our stuff all the time. Except then we had to buy more stuff. So that would be the problem, right? But you know, so many of us, we have so much clutter, right, in our lives. We have so much clutter in our lives. And clutter, um, the definition of clutter is anything we don't use, love, or we wouldn't buy again. That's a good definition, huh? Anything you don't use, you don't love, and you wouldn't buy again. And when you look around your house, right, or you look around your locker, (laughs) some people's lockers, are full of clutter, right? There's always those kids in school where they open their locker and stuff just came out. And then they would kind of like, and try to close it, you know? But you look around your life and you say, what's the stuff here that I don't use, I don't love, and I would never buy it again? And that's clutter. And clutter fills our life so much that it's hard for us to have space to be able to do anything. And maybe for you, you're not, you don't have possessions. You don't have a bunch of clutter, physical clutter in your life. But what I've been really thinking about during this series is a lot of us have really cluttered hearts. And maybe our closets aren't cluttered. Maybe they're perfect. Mine isn't. Maybe our attics aren't cluttered. Maybe our basements aren't cluttered. Maybe our cars aren't cluttered. Maybe our backpacks aren't cluttered, but our hearts are cluttered. And you think about in your life that stuff in your heart where there's no room. There's no room for yourself. There's no room for God. There's no room for relationships because your heart is so cluttered. And then think about that definition of clutter. 
all the stuff in my heart that I don't use, I don't love, and I would never buy that again. So what, is some, what are some clutter that we could have in our heart? Maybe shame. Maybe your heart is just full of shame. Every day you say, I can't make a difference. I can't make space because you're just so ashamed of who you are or what you've done. Maybe it's unforgiveness. You don't have room for anybody else because your heart is so full of unforgiveness towards others. Maybe it's worry and fear. I cannot make a difference if I'm consumed with worry and fear. Maybe it's hatred and anger. Every time you turn on the news, every time you get on Facebook, every time you see your neighbor with that bumper sticker, that anger just begins to well up in you. And that hatred, it's clutter. And there's no room inside of your heart. You know, something from this bumper video that's really been haunting me, that guy, you know, he's walking through and he's you know, a hoarder and there's just mess everywhere, right? I don't know how they got footage of my living room like that. <laughs> It's so weird. I don't remember cameras coming in or anything. But, you know, he walks into this room, and it's just, you can barely hear it because it's all distorted, right? But he says, you know, I, I might use this stuff someday, but not right now. And isn't that what we do with the clutter in our heart? I can't forgive. I might use this unforgiveness someday, but not right now. I can't let go of this pain. I might need this pain someday but not right now. And our lives are so full of clutter that we don't have any space in order to do anything. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 and 13, I love this passage, and I love how it's said in the message. It says, Dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide open spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. That's powerful. That's a powerful verse. I'm going to read it one more time because I've been, I've been reading this verse throughout this whole series, just reading it over and over again, and it's powerful. Dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter into this wide open, spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. Isn't that beautiful? There's three things that, that really stick out to me in this verse. The first one is that there's a wide open, spacious life waiting for you. Isn't that kind of revolutionary? What? I don't feel that way. When I look at my life, it seems like it's not wide open. It seems like maybe it's narrow. It seems like there's hallways. It seems like there's doors. It seems like there's walls all around me. It seems like I'm not able to do anything. It feels like I'm trapped. 
How many of you guys have felt that way? It doesn't feel wide open, but the Bible is saying to you, there's a wide open, spacious life right ahead of you. It's right there. It's not small. It's not too little. You know, I think that in in my marriage to Jake, I think both of us have helped each other live a, a bigger, wide open, spacious life. I can only think of one time I helped him. But I can think of numerous times he helped me. (laughs) When we first got married, you know, he would kind of ask me, like, what are your dreams? I don't know. I don't know, right? And maybe I didn't know, or maybe I was too nervous to tell him or or whatever. But Jake, if you've ever even talked to him, he has 100,000 million dreams. And they are all completely possible. And he will get them all, right? And so, you know, sometimes I would be like, well, you know, maybe I was kind of thinking about doing this. But, you know, and I would tell him all the reasons why that would never work and I would never be able to do it and I would never succeed and how it could never happen. But that's not how Jake thought. You see, he was raised in a way where anything was possible. If you dream it, you can do it. And so he would always be like, what? No, that's awesome. You should do it. No, that's totally fine. Let's do it. And I would look at him like, what? It's a yes? Uh Uh-oh. No, I was kidding. I don't want to do it. Right? But he helped me learn that there's a wide open, spacious life right in front of you. So many of us live and all we see is walls, no doors. We're stuck in a box and there's no doors to get out. That's not the life that God has given you. He created you to have a wide open, spacious life. The second thing I love about this verse Christianity doesn't fence you in. It opens you up. This is the number one lie against Christianity. And guess what? The devil, the snake, whatever, it, you, he used it right in the beginning of time. This is the lie he told Adam and Eve, right? Christianity makes you small. You're going to be so restricted if you follow God. Your life is going to be so tiny. And what is Paul saying here? We didn't fence you in. Christianity doesn't fence you in. You see, if you really truly believe that God created you, which I do, I believe God created each and every one of you. But if you really truly believe that God created you, then you can believe that he knows you and that he knows how you work and he knows how you think and he knows how you should live and he probably knows what's best for you, right? And so when I give him my life, when I put my trust in him and I say, here, God, You think for me, I'm bad at it. I'm bad at thinking. Have you seen what I've done? It's bad. Can you help me to think? It doesn't fence us in. It opens us up to the life that we were made to have, which is a wide, open, spacious life, not a fenced-in, small, narrow life. And the last thing that I, I really stood out to me about this verse is he said, your life isn't small. You're living it small. Oh man, ouch. Your life isn't small, you're living it small. How many of us have wasted too much time living a small life by believing the lie that there's only walls, that there's no open doors ahead of us, right? And we live trapped or we live trapped with all the clutter inside of us and we don't walk into the wide open spacious life that God has for you. God is a God of possibilities. He's a God of yes. He's not a God of no, you can't do anything. He wants you 
to live your life big, not live your life small. I'm going to tell you guys a story. It starts with this man. His name was Edward Kimball, or Kimball. I don't know how to pronounce it. And um, Edward Kimball, he, he was a Christian. He went to church, but he was just an ordinary guy. And so he asked God, God, what can I do to make a difference? God, what can I do? What do you want me to do in my life? And he felt like God told him, I want you to go after the hard kids in the elementary age, the hard boys. You, some of you guys, if you work in the elementary class, you're like, amen, preach it. We need some men right now to hear this call, right? But he did. He felt like God told him, go after the, so they're almost teenagers. Some of them are early teenagers. Go after those hard boys and get every single one of them to make a decision to follow me. And so that's what he did. He began to teach Sunday school and he took in the hard boys and he, would, he worked with them. He taught them about God. He taught them about Jesus. He told them about the gospel and he wanted every single one of them to make a decision to follow Jesus. And there was this one boy, Dwight, and Dwight was not getting it, Right? You guys are like, oh, it's my kid. <laughs> Dwight was not getting it. And he's, you know, oh, he's fr frantic over Dwight. Dwight is not getting it. He's still bad. And so he decides he's going to go to Dwight's work during the week. This is my favorite part of the story because you're like, there must have been, this must have been when there's no child labor laws. Because <laughs> why is he going to this boy's work? <laughs> right? But this is when there's no child labor laws. So Dwight is working in a shoe store, and he is restocking the shelves in the back. And so um, Edward, he goes to Dwight's work, and, he's, and he begins to plead with Dwight right there at work and says, Dwight, you need to make a decision to follow Jesus. You need to give your heart to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. And he does. Right there, he says a prayer at work, and he gives his life to Jesus. What's interesting is that Edward Kimball, he left and he didn't feel great about it. He didn't feel like he'd done such a great job. He still left like, oh, I don't know. I don't know how great that was. How many of you guys have ever invited someone to church and you leave it and you're like so nervous to do it and then you finally you invite them to church and then you walk away and you're like, I don't know how that went. That wasn't so great. I'm not so sure, right? We talk about Christianity when we think that, you know, when, once you obey, you always leave feeling so pumped. Absolutely not true, Right? <laughs> Every Sunday, you should see Jake. He's like, that was the worst message. <laughs> and we're all like, it was amazing. It was wonderful. Right? But you don't always feel so great when you obey God because you start to doubt. And Edward Kimball doubt. But guess who Dwight was? He was D.L. Moody. And maybe you're not familiar with him, but D.L. Moody, he, he was an amazing man of God who in that time, he went to two different continents preaching the gospel. They say he preached the gospel to thousands of people, thousands of people, incredible, right? So Edward didn't know he was making an impact, but God did. Well, a man named Wilbur Chapman, he actually went to one of D.L. Moody's um, meetings. And Wilbur Chapman, right then at the meeting, he said, I'm following Jesus. And so he gave his life to Jesus and he began to follow Jesus. And then he began to do meetings like D.L. Moody would do, where they would you know, tell everyone, we're having a meeting tonight. We're having a meeting. And people would come and they would preach the gospel and people would get saved. And so that's what Wilbur Chapman began to do with his life. And he preached to thousands of people as well. And then Wilbur Chapman, at one of his meetings, there was a professional baseball player. His name was Billy Sunday. 
And Billy Sunday decided he didn't have a baseball game that night. So he said, I'm going to go to this meeting. I heard all about it. Everyone's talking about it. I'm going to go hear this guy speak. And so he goes to the meeting and he gives, his, he gives his life to Jesus. He hears the gospel and he says, I'm living for something new. In fact, he quit baseball after that. And he became a pastor and he pastored a large church. And then there was a man, Mordecai Ham, who came to Billy Sunday's church. And Mordecai Ham, his dad and his grandpa had both been preachers. But Mordecai Ham had decided he was not going to be a preacher. He was not going to follow in their footsteps, even though he knew that's what God wanted him to do with his life. He decided, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to be poor. He'd watched his grandpa be poor. He'd grown up poor. His dad was poor. And he said, I don't want to be poor. I'm going to do a job that makes me money. But about six months after Mordecai Ham got married, he said, well, I can't do this. I got to do what God's called me to do. And so he began to be a preacher. And he traveled around as well, and he began to preach. And one of the things that Mordecai Ham did was he would uh, preach against sin in whatever town he was in. And so he goes to this one town, and there was a, um, a house of ill repute. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what it was called. <laughs> I have no idea what kind of ill repute, so you can fill in the blank there. But there was a house of ill repute, and it was across the street from the high school. And Mordecai Ham, he began to preach against that house and talk about how bad that house was and, you know, just go against that house. And the house actually shut down. And so a bunch of the high school boys were mad. They were not happy about the house shutting down. And so they decided we're going to go to his meeting and we're going to make it crazy, right? We're just going to disrupt the whole thing, bring it to the ground, you know, whatever high school students were going to do back then. And so um, they decided to do this. Well, there's this one boy and his name was Billy Frank. And he wanted to go. He didn't want to be part of the destruction, but he wanted to see, right? This is basically me. I don't want to take part in the bad things that are going on. I don't want to get caught, but I'd love to see it, right? How many of you guys are like, yeah, that's kind of me. I'd love to see what happens tonight. Let's go see what's going to happen, right? And so that was him, and he went. He went expecting to be able to see, you know? So he went a few times waiting. Okay, they're going to come tonight. They're going to come tonight. But you know what happened? He heard the words that Mordecai Ham were preaching, and they began to change his heart. And he chose Jesus. And you know who Billy Frank is? It's Billy Graham. His family called him Billy Frank. And so when we say, I cannot make a difference, you know, these people, they make a huge difference in their life. And I don't know how they do it. 2.2 billion? I can't compare to that. I can't make a difference. But think about Edward Kimball. God, I can't preach to 2.2 billion people but I can help these boys who disrupt all during class and nobody else wants to deal with them. I can tell them about you. Listen to me, men in the room. This is a great ministry you could do in our elementary class. You know, teaching young men, being a dad to them, being a friend to them, letting them talk to you. Tell, letting them tell you about the weird pictures they draw, the, the weird comic books they read, <laughs> just listening to them about Captain Underpants. And you're like, I had rather do other things with my life. Absolutely, we all would. <laughs> but imagine what you can do to change someone's life. 
So we're always looking for the big thing that we can do to make a difference when it comes from the small obedience. You know, Jake and I, when we were selling all of our stuff on our driveway, it was because we had made a decision long before in our heart. And this is the whole point of today, is that every single one of us has to position ourselves Inside of our heart, it's actually a position that we take where we say, God, whatever you ask me, I'll say yes. And that is a dangerous prayer. Don't, I'm not just saying it lightly. I'm not saying it flippantly. I understand that it's hard. I understand that it's dangerous. But it's something that we, we position in our heart first and we say, God, I'm changing the way that I think. My life is not just for me. Maybe you've never asked God, where should I work? Who should I marry? Where should I live? How many kids should I have? Whatever. Maybe you've never asked God. You've never invited him into these places in your heart. But you can start today by saying, God, I want to take a position in my heart where I say, if you ask me, I'll say yes. And so why were we selling all of our stuff in our driveway? Because he asked us to do something. And we already had a longstanding yes with him. So as soon as he said, this is what I want you to do, there wasn't really an option for us. We said, of course, but you know what? It cost us. That's why we had to sell our stuff, right? Saying yes to God will always cost you. You think about Mordecai Ham. He was wrestling with that. He didn't want to be poor because he knew if I say yes to God, it's going to cost me. Literally, I won't be wealthy. I'll be poor, and I just don't want to be poor anymore. But he chose to say, yes, okay, God, I'll do what you ask me. And think about how many lives are changed because of that yes. In our lives, we have to position ourselves and say, God, I'm going to say yes. I'm turning towards you. I'm saying yes, anything you ask me, I'll say yes. So today, I have some action steps. Just like Jake, you know, he always has action steps. So I said, well, I better get some action steps. The first one, we're ending this minimal series, but the first action steps step is to just make space in your life to breathe. Remember what Jake talked about, margins? Just make some space so that you can actually breathe and think and think through these things. Be able to have time so you can say, is there clutter in my heart? Is my heart cluttered? Make some space to breathe. Number two, begin to pray. Like Pastor Mike taught us, just begin to pray. You don't have to have specific words. You don't have to say it all the right way. You just have to say, hey God, I know you're already listening to me and you already know. You know, when you have kids or when you work with kids, you realize how easy and simple the gospel really is because you have to explain it to them. You know, our kids, sometimes one of them will pray, especially Penny, she's two, and it's the worst by religious standards, right? It's like, amen. You're like, rock on. He heard you. Praise the Lord, right? And, and our son Jack, sometimes he will say like, you don't say the right words. You know, you didn't do that right. You know, older siblings, you guys got to get the younger ones in line. And we always say, you know, you know, that's perfect. Just talk. Just say something. And then our older daughter, she's six. Sometimes she says, how, how do you know that God hears me? 
You say, you know, it does kind of feel like you're talking to the ceiling, huh? How many of you guys can relate to that? I don't pray because it feels like I'm talking to the ceiling. But that's what faith is. It's saying, God, it feels like I'm talking to the ceiling or I'm talking to myself. I look like a lunatic. But I have faith that you hear me. I know that you hear me. So begin to pray. The third one, get in a group. Find a group. Be part of a community. Be part of something. Let people get into your life and begin to pour your life into other people. Get into a group. And number four, make a heart decision to say yes to God. Make a heart decision. Change the position of your heart away from God towards God to say, God, whatever it is you might ask me, that is basically what the entire Old Testament is about. About people who God came and said, do this. And they said, my heart has already turned that way. So of course I'm going to say yes. Sometimes they argued. Moses argued a lot. But they still said, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to say yes. So turn your heart to say yes to God.